These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. As I record this, it's Monday morning, April 6th, one day after Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, which will lead up to Easter this Sunday. First thing I saw this morning when I opened up my phone was that according to all reports, we are in for a rough ride the next couple of weeks. And that made me wonder about those in the church. What is coming to their mind as they ponder the fact that our toughest test of a generation will coincide with a most significant holy time? The church, currently constrained by how it must deal with flocks remotely. And all of that here in what is perhaps the most religious city in the country, home of the largest megachurch in America. There will be no congregational singing this year, not shoulder to shoulder. The first time that has happened here in over 100 years. There will be no pastel colored dresses or post-church feasts. No mass of children in parks running around hunting for Easter eggs. All facets of our lives get tested here, each industry, every sector, every institution under the sun, and so too will the church be tested, significantly in its most necessary and holy time. And given that, there is a woman in this city, a reverend, who is quietly going about it. She's been so busy with her work the past two weeks, we could barely get a half hour to interview her. It's because she's been busy haunting the HEB, not to hoard, but just doing her part, feeding the poor, in what is now the poor's greatest time of need, a biblical time, it could be said. And so maybe it all means that those who celebrate Easter this year in Houston must make it about something more of an action than something symbolic or celebratory. From Trinity Episcopal Church, the Reverend Hannah Atkins Romero. I couldn't imagine being homeless, actually, to tell you the truth. I heard a broadcaster say, though, on the other end of the spectrum one time, that it's really hard to go backwards in life. It's one thing if you've always had a kind of a meager income, just kind of going in a straight line in life. Uh, although I, I will say with this sort of thing that's impending, I would think that everybody is in for, for some sort of a change. But that those who have always had much have always had the comfort, luxuries, etc. That it is incredibly soul-shattering for them to have all of that and know that sort of life, and then have it taken away. In your experience, how do you think the rich people or the comfortable people are handling this crisis? And how are the poor people handling it in your outreach and in your ministry? And is there a discernible difference between the way the two groups are handling it? That's a really broad and good question. I think that as human beings, there are you know, a number of ways to react, whether you're, you're rich or poor. And people are reacting with fear for good reasons, with anxiety, with trying to take care of themselves and others, and facing something that we don't, we've never faced before as a society. In the 2008 crash, there were all these articles about how to live with less for people who were experiencing a drop in income. And I used to laugh with my husband just because it's like, well, that, I, we already do that. <laughs> you know, that's just called, that's called living a middle-class life, you know? <laughs> and, and, um, but unfortunately, um, 
you know, it's an adjustment for people. It's an adjustment for everyone. The homeless or the unhoused, there are a lot of places that have closed down. Um, they can't necessarily get the support and the resources that they need. Homelessness is rooted in the sin of poverty in the United States and the inequality of class and in the inadequate support for people who have different challenges or are crushed by a medical bill. And so for the homeless folks that come to our church every weekday for sandwiches and a sack lunch and some other food to get them through the night, we, we've we really, even though the building is closed, we've really tried to keep that going. So just a skeleton staff continue to scour for um, for bread, you know, loaves of bread, which, you know, it's funny. You go to H-E-B and people are, or not H-E-B, but any store, and people are like, you can't buy more than two loaves of bread. And we're like, well, you, we're buying it for the homeless community we're trying to feed. And they're like, they're, people are freaked out. So, um, and they, they get very judgy. And, you know, we're all equal here. Well, you know, we're not trying to buy it for ourselves. We're trying to buy it for uh, folks on the streets who can't who can't afford it you just can't afford it. So I think when people get judgy about what you're buying in a grocery store, it's because they're scared. And when people are scared, um, you just have to extend more grace and love. Are you saying they're judgy because they think that you're hoarding? Yes, they wow. do. They think that. Oh, or but also they yeah they think that we're hoarding it. When you tell them that it's for the homeless, do they fall on their knees and? Beg the reverend for forgiveness? No, no. <laughs> you know, people are just trying to navigate this. You know, people will be like, well, it doesn't matter who you're buying it for. You can only get a certain amount. So we've had different reactions. So your question was about how the rich and poor react. And so my, um, I'm going to try to make a short answer that might work for this podcast, is that both the rich and poor are human beings with some basic human tendencies. And they're insecure, whether you're unhoused, no matter how how much you've gotten used to being insecure, more insecurity because places that you've come to depend on for aid and help and, um, and you know, to get water or to, you know, go to the bathroom, they're closed. So they're, they're more insecure. And then the rich are insecure at another level. And that's because they're seeing their stock portfolios go crazy. And everybody's worried about themselves and their families. The basic things that the homeless are losing are so basic that it's, you know, dehumanizing even more. So that's why we're trying to keep um, some of our support systems going. And Emergency Aid Coalition is doing that as well. And Lord of the Streets is doing that as well. And it's hard because it's scary. Um, it's scary to stand there and wipe the water thing with the Purell after, you know, after people fill up their water bottles. But you see these human beings that need water, you know. And and then there's some very funny moments. Like our security guard is very... Um, lovely, but very right wing. So I have, I have to, he'll say that they're going to come up with a cure, you know, while he's, while he's handing out sandwiches and he'll spout off some crazy theory. And I'll be like, PSA, that is not true. <laughs> and then the homeless will come up with, you know, with smart arguments against it. So we've had some interesting conversations. 
theologically, you know, for people who have basic needs met, maybe they'll understand, those who are privileged will understand more their dependence on God and that their worth and dignity does not depend on what's in their bank accounts or what they're able to give to their children. Their worth and dignity is um, because they were gifted life by the creator of all things. My producer, Scott, is kind of responsible for this interview today. When he came to your building to vote, he saw this gallery stretching down your hallway there of these church portraits that were taken on Easter Sunday that included every member of the congregation as far back as 1924. Uh, We think it's just devastating, he and I, that you are now facing a year where there could be a vacant spot on the wall. Easter 2020. One interesting thing about the gallery that he tells me, I can't, I'm quarantined, so I can't come down there and see it. It shows a congregation that goes from black and white photography days as you walk down the hallway through to pictures with color and then to digital. And in the same way you walk that hallway, you see the congregation itself becoming more naturally integrated, more differentiated. Some of your congregation, as you just talked about, basically the ones with portfolios, and you're mentioning the sin of poverty. Some of your congregation must be okay, comfortable, have the cushion to weather it. Others, however, who were already on the brink could be already in survival mode. What torments you in your inability to reach those cases out in the community that you can't get to because of this quarantine? Um, There are so many things. We had to postpone uh, a memorial service for a father who, you know, was beloved. And we had set up and worked with the family, you know, the, the liturgy, the worship service, the coming together in a big group to remember is incredibly important for spiritual healing, emotional health, and grieving. And we weren't able to do that. There are people in the hospital that I can't visit, and they're very ill. As a priest, not gathering in person and not having the community gather together in person has just made my stomach hurt. And when I realized that we weren't going to be able to do Holy Week. Some of the members of my congregation have said to me, well, I've never missed a Sunday at church. And to be honest, I've missed a couple of Sundays in my life at church. (laughs) (laughs) But I've never missed a Holy Week. I mean, I I just haven't. My my father's an Episcopal priest as well. and, And I love Holy Week. And I love gathering with people at all of these incredibly special services that we've contributed to and planned for and reminds us of the centrality of our faith. And, and we can't do that. So, you know, we're, we're putting services online and we're live streaming, we're doing all that, but it's really, it's really, um, it's really difficult for people of faith not to gather. I can't remember a time in my entire life when people couldn't get together and sing songs. I know music is is a huge part of worship. It's a huge part of the service. What are we missing as a society that we can't get together and sing together, do you think? We're, well, we're missing a lot. You know, any choir would tell you that when you sing together with people, you ha- you're super aware of each other in a way that you're not normally aware. You have to take into account how you, you know, harmonize, how your voice and your breath match with the other, and you have to breathe together, and you have, you know, a goal of making this this beauty. Now, 
there is that saying, um, make beautiful noise, <laughs> which those who, who can't sing have to be incorporated as well. Um, joyful noise, joyful noise. The prelude, the organ gets people sort of meditative. And then April's solos moves people to tears. And then we are missing out on that, you know, that physical, spiritual closeness and um, awareness of being together, making something of praise and something beautiful together. A lot of people are in our experience, singing from home, you know, they're singing the hymns and along with us and they're, they're getting out of their comfort zones because it's also, unless you're, you know, a professional singer or have a lot of confidence, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, sing at home alone or with one other person because you can really stand out. And so when you're singing in a group and with that organ music, you can just, you can just let go whether you're a good singer or not. And people are learning to do that at home, I think. Doing the math, I think you've got two boys. Are they both at home? Are they somewhere around teenagers? I have two teenagers at home, a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. All right. So I saw this hilarious, hilarious Facebook video this morning. The mother was in an all-out war with her teenage son. She was going through his closet, forcing him to do his multiplication tables. And uh, she she said, get out. She tried to kick him out of the house, but then she realized she (laughs) she couldn't kick him out, right? Wait, was that on my Facebook page? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How are y'all holding up? Hold up in the house with two teenage boys in a in a quarantine. How I, I would imagine with a priest there are zero problems whatsoever. Everyone is completely well behaved and no no problems, right? Have you never heard of priest kids? <laughs> <laughs> They're the most mischievous. My sons have actually said, "Well, mom, what about forgiveness and the love of God?" <laughs> This has been Coronavirus Chronicle. Everyone involved here would like to thank all those people out in Houston who are inspiring us at the moment. The first responders, essential workers, healthcare professionals, everyone stocking the shelves, keeping us provided for in these uncertain times. You have our heartfelt gratitude. How could we ever thank you enough? And to our churches in this city, our charities, all of those who are out tending to the poor, feeding them, putting yourselves in harm's way, We wish you a safe and very happy Easter this Sunday. Managing editors Mark LaRondo, Maria Reeve, we thank you very much for your help with this. Scott Kingsley is the Houston Chronicle podcast editor, and my name is Farrell Gibbs. Taking us out today is a live performance at Trinity Episcopal Church. And until we meet again, to the kindest, most resilient city I've ever known, let's stay that way, Houston. Here is April Sloan Hubert singing... Balm and Gilead, April, is an integral part of the Trinity Jazz Ensemble. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead. So oh.